from American Salon Magazine and .com. This is American Salon Stories, a weekly podcast featuring some of the most interesting people we know. Welcome to the American Salon Stories podcast. I'm Gordon Miller, your podcast host and the CEO of Hairbrain.me. Today's guest, Candy Shaw Codner, is the head of the Atlanta-based Jameson Shaw Hairdressers and founder of Sunlight's Balayage. She's a recognized celebrity stylist, educator, and platform artist, and the daughter of the, I guess famous is the best way to say it in our industry, Jameson Shaw, the iconic salon owner and world champion competitor. Um, Candy literally grew up in the industry from an early age, surrounded by some of the most important names in beauty. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Candy's nicknamed the Bali Lama. I so love that. Um, She's worked behind the chair full-time for a long time, and today she works with up to six assistants and sees up to 35 clients per day. In 1996, she founded Jameson Shaw Advanced Hairdressing Systems, an advanced academy that teaches French cutting and balayage highlighting techniques. And and Candy's known all over the world for really championing the, the technique of balayage and the art of balayage. In 2014, she launched Sunlight's Balayage Incorporated, a new product line specifically formulated for the balayage highlighting technique. Welcome to the American Salon Stories podcast, Candy Shaw. Thank you, Gordon. I'm so happy to be here. This is wonderful. I want you to start by giving a, a self-introduction because there's a lot to talk about. I want you to give your version of, of what's the short version of Candy Shaw today and, and what's a typical day in your life look like? Well, first of all, there is no typical day because uh, Candy Shaw, the person, is not only a still behind the chair as a hairdresser, I'm also an entrepreneur building a brand. Uh, I'm also a mother of three, and I also run an academy. So there really isn't a typical day, but I would just say that Candy Shaw still just loves every bit about being a teacher and a mentor and a coach to others. And um, I, I have to go back to your intro because anybody who's paying attention, when I got to the line that says you'd sometimes do up to 35 clients a day, and I think I've bumped into you a couple times when you had more. Um, okay, so tell us what that looks like. Well, it's kind of organized chaos, I must say. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're doing this podcast after one of those days. So I'm really energized uh, to do this simply because my clients fuel me um, to sort of be the best, you know. Being behind the chair truly gives me a pulse on what's going on in our industry, staying connected to our guests every day. Uh, Also, mainly, I do it simply because uh, I love my craft and it continues to allow me to practice. So I work with probably five to six assistants in any given day, and we are sort of poetry in motion. Uh, Guests will come in three at a time every 30 minutes, and we just... um, continue to do what we need to do on each guest. So at any given time, I might have nine or 10 people going at once. But the crazy part about doing 35 guests is not only do I do that many, I don't do it over nine or 10 hours in a day. I actually do that in about five. So um, it's it's a it's a abbreviated version of, of what I actually used to do behind the chair, which is even a little bit more. I've kind of cut it back to about 25 to 30 now. So it's getting a, I'm sort of getting a little lazy in my old age, I guess. I I was going to say you've become a total slacker with only 35 clients in five hours. Oh my gosh. I love that. So, okay, we're going to go way back because you are are part of really a a hairdressing dynasty. Um, And, you know, I've met your father. I saw him um, on stage. I remember last year at Indra Coiffure. 
um, with little um, with Jenny Streeby's daughter, um, who's Magnolia, who's about five years old, and and your dad, who again is a real icon in the industry up there with little Magnolia, was was quite a sight to see. Um, so talk about being born into that hairdressing family and. I don't know your path to this, because I, I don't know if you always wanted to be a hairdresser. Well, it's interesting you should say that. Uh, my father has an eighth grade education. Uh, both of us actually are dyslexic. And uh, I never went to beauty school because in Georgia, you don't have to. And I never went to college. So my only way to graduate out of high school was to become an entrepreneur early on and start cutting hair in the locker room in trade for math homework. Um, it was literally the only way I could pass uh, school um, because of my dyslexia. It was just something that held me back. But I also practiced on my friends and just knew very early on that I wanted to be a hairdresser. I would work on Saturdays. I would ride my bike uh, over to our salon. We lived very close to my father's first salon. My father just uh, retired after 60 years behind the chair uh, about three years ago. And he's the first original that taught me how to do so many people in a day. He just... Uh, kind of had a formula, so to speak, of how to make that work. Um, sort of, if you would think about what it's like to uh, be in a, a big kitchen, you know, there's the sous chef and the pastry chef and there's the waiter and the busboy. So everybody sort of had a defined role as to how to, you know, make this work. But coming into this business was just natural for me. I mean, being a hairdresser was all I ever wanted to be and all I ever knew. Uh, I really never considered anything else. How did you, so growing up, um, first of all, uh, I like to say I'm all about finding the, the cheat in life. And I, and I mean that in a positive way, like just finding shortcuts that make things more efficient to get us to wherever we're trying to get to. Um, and I, I love that you kind of found your cheat, if you will, um, both it sounds like literally and figuratively to get yourself through high school, but to, to do it for a greater purpose, which was to get into hairdressing. But talk a little bit about your struggles and, and also your solutions, I guess, to living with dyslexia, which I know so many people in this industry are challenged by. I know for so many people, it creates self-esteem issues. And, and you're certainly not somebody I look to as having low self-esteem. So Talk about overcoming dyslexia. Well, you know, back in the day, uh, we just went into re reading remediation. So we weren't diagnosed like my daughter, who is 16, is diagnosed with dyslexia now and actually went to a school for dyslexia. But for me, I really truly believe, and she would say the same thing, that dyslexia has been a gift to us. Uh, it just makes you look at life a lot differently. And yes, you are indeed correct. Um, when you find your calling uh, of what you want to do and how you can put your, your thoughts and your passions into something, you know, overcoming a learning disability, you know, can really be remarkably wonderful. And, um, my father still can't spell. I mean, he, poor guy, at least I sort of overcame a, a few of those uh, challenges along the way, but, you know, hairdressing really gave me a vehicle to get out there and do things that were creative and that were visual. You know, visual uh, visualizing learning was always so easy. It came so natural to me. If my father would show me how to do a haircut, 
he would show me once and I could literally replicate it, you know, on the, on the first mannequin that I tried. Uh, so there is that right brain, left brain type of, of, of learner. But more importantly, I think it also just made me give myself permission to fail. And, you know, and it was okay at an early age, you know, to, to say I couldn't or I, I can't. And if I didn't do it right or if I didn't do it perfect, I gave myself the permission to, to do it again. And I think what it does is it, it has taught me how to be an advocate for myself. Um, you know, it's really remarkable because I think about it now. Um, here I am as a respected teacher. And yet back in the day, you know, the teacher was the thing I feared the most. So I look at that and I think, wow, you know, this really is uh, quite awesome that I can now represent uh, teachers and go to students and find students in my classroom who have the same struggles as I grew up with. Uh, So to me, I think that I would say to anybody with a learning disability or dyslexia that is in the hairdressing industry to just stay the course and just know that you too will find uh, it to be a gift along the way. And as much as it might break you down, I do believe that in the end, it will build you up. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your father is also dyslexic. And the, um, I think one of the challenges many people encounter, you know, is a lack of understanding and appreciation from those around them of, as to what the individual is dealing with as, as somebody who's different. And did you find that, I don't know if your dad recognized he was dyslexic or, you know, was there, was that something because you share that? challenge? Did that in any way, I don't want to say make it easier for you, but was there a level of acceptance or understanding or or guidance that came out of that shared issue? You know, I think that um, when I was young, I was, I was very lucky. First of all, my mother graduated high school at the age of 16. She was brilliant. So she made up for all the things that my father was not able to do. She was a mathematician. She ran the business with my father. She was actually my father's model in comp- when he was a competition hairdresser. Uh, and she also uh, could do makeup and was a makeup artist. My parents were always super supportive. And because they always lived, worked, you know, played and prayed together. They were always, uh, you know, I never was, I never felt like they looked at me like, oh, she can't know you're like your dad or anything like that. The natural path for me was literally at 12 and 13 years old, I was already beginning to become a hairdresser. So I didn't really live out teenage years with scrutiny or any kind of, oh, I feel dumb because my friends looked at me like, wow, she's already got a job. You know, she's 12, she's 13, she's working, she's making money. You know, she's bought her own car. I bought my first condo when I was 17 years old, uh, from the monies that I had saved, um, as a hairdresser and for the monies that I had made. So I worked every summer. Like I said, I worked every Saturday. So I don't really think my father or mother ever looked at me any differently because, you know, I I often have said that I'm kind of a street punk. You know, I, I was, uh, I, I fought my way up, you know, and it was very natural for me to always, uh, 
just overcome anything. Uh, if you were in a burning building, you know, you would want to be behind me because I would get out of that building. You know, somehow I always found the end or, or, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, or the rainbow. I really never looked at it like uh, a crutch or something that I would use as um, uh, my excuse, so to speak. Uh, so I, I don't think I really ever felt like anyone ever treated me differently, to be honest. And, and that's so empowering. That's, that's really, really cool. Okay. So, uh, you know, I mentioned you, you've grown up in, in this, you know, iconic hairdressing family. And I, I have a feeling that some special people from time to time showed up around the dinner table. Um, any stories in terms of some of the more well-known people in the industry showing up? Did, did any of the people who your father had connections to during his career have an impact on you as a young hairdresser or as someone thinking about coming into it? Absolutely. You know, I was super, um, I was super lucky uh, to break bread, as I said, uh, with so many industry greats at so many different places in, in my life. Like, I'll give you a couple for instances. I remember as a young child going to Paul Mitchell's Avapui farm in Hawaii with my family. And I remember sitting around, uh, you know, uh, outside by the pool and talking to people, you know, like, uh, like him, not even knowing who he was, you know, he was just Paul, you know, and I remember, uh, uh, you know, Horst and, and my dad and my uncle Don Shaw, you know, just, I remember Horst when Horst products were not even a Veda. It was called Horst and Horst came to my wedding 30 years ago. And, you know, as a kid, I would, you know, go to, uh, you know, go up and watch my father at the Orpheum Theater, you know, do things on behalf of the masters and, and horseback in the day. And uh, I remember being influenced by uh, someone, two people who you may or may not, your listeners may or may not even know. And that was John and Susie Chadwick, uh, you know, who stayed at our home um, a, a, a million times over. And then there's just people in the industry. There was a lot of married couples. I mean, obviously, having met Vidal and tons of uh, of iconic people, certainly. But just there was it, there was a sense of, of of family that that was that so uh, molded my life. You know, there was all these married couples like John and Carol Seegers and Stephen and Bernadette Zabo, and um, you know. Uh, all these Mario and Cheryl Tricocci, you know, all their lives, you know, that's all they ever did. You know, they started just like my parents, of course, my uncle and Don, Don and Sylvia Shaw, they were also very influential in my life. So, you know, hairdressing was day in and day out in my family. It was at the dinner table. It was, uh, you know, uh, it was in our home. It was everywhere we went. And um, we never had a stranger, you know, every hairdresser. That's the one thing that I love the most about hairdressing is, you know, today I'm, I would consider myself a road warrior and I'm gone every weekend and I'm either in a classroom or I'm at a show. And no matter if I know you or not, you know, hairdressers are all the same. You know, they're friendly and they're kind and they're warm and they're loving and, and they're accepting you know, um, that's why I really feel like it's one of the greatest industries. Um, and I, I just feel like my position is that I, Candy Shaw, want to continue to leave a legacy and a mark on our industry that is going to uh, 
be respected. You know, I don't want to see this industry lose its grace and its dignity and its heritage and its history. Um, you know, it's, it, it's crazy. I'll, I'll have a new staff member that might come on board and I'll ask them, um, do you know who this person is or that person is? And I'll name these iconic people. And they're like, no, I've never heard of them. And I'm like, no, this can't be, you know, these are your forefathers. These are the people who created some of the greatest things, um, in our industry. So it's sort of become my, my duty, you know, to just continue to mention some of those, those hair heroes and, 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 and hopefully that people can go back and study that, you know, the history of our industry, because now, with di the digital age and with Instagram and with all those things that are out there, I really believe that, you know, some people rise to the top, you know, without necessarily earning their way there, you know, just from a, a emphasis of followers, they didn't necessarily create something that was um, new and different. They just happened to do something differently uh, to an audience. And so I don't want, uh, the history to be lost from Anne Bray or Sharon Blaine or some of these phenomenal artists that have been 50 years in this industry. Um, I want to take you back again to an earlier part of your career because somewhere along your path, you decided to jump deep into the hair color pool. And so talk about that. At what point in, in your hairdressing life did you decide that, that hair color was going to be your passion? Well, it's interesting you asked that question because it, and I know that people overuse this word about, oh, it just happened organically, <laughs> but it's really true. Um, I've had an academy in Atlanta for over 20 years where I teach French cutting and French balayage. And, and I've been uh, painting hair before painting hair was cool. I mean, long before the trend uh, went viral and long before that. And to be completely honest, Gordon, um, I was struggling with the products that I was trying to paint hair with. Um, most uh, lighteners were built for foiling. And so therefore the product was a very different consistency and a different product. Um, and so I decided that I thought, you know what, I am kind of bootlegging and that's the God's honest truth to my student in my academy. I'm literally making kits out of the back. And I'm, I'm putting in my paddle that I like. I'm putting in my brush that I like. I'm putting in um, the lightener that I like. I'm putting in the things that I like. And I'm literally making these kits because when I would teach balayage, they would not have what they needed, the tools they needed to go home with. So I started to kind of make these little kits. And so I came up with this idea and I thought, you know what? I really should go to the, to the manufacturers and I should get them to make a balayage lightener. Like, I think that's what this industry needs because many of the products that I had purchased from overseas, um, um, and European countries, they were going out of business. They were, you know, just not, uh, you know, I was having difficulty getting the products, you know, there was just all these different reasons. So I went to the leading manufacturers and I sat down in the boardroom and I said, Hey, you know, y'all need to make a balayage lightener. And I have a great idea. And I think I know exactly, uh, you know, what, what could work. Well, they told me that balayage was a trend and, you know, that it probably was just, you know, not 
you know, they didn't really want to focus on lightener. I mean, you know, color companies, you know, the lightener is typically the caboose. You know, it's it's the end of the train. It's not the front of the train. It's the last thing they concentrate on. They want to concentrate on, you know, six level, seven level, eight level, you know, hair colors. And so when they turned me down, I was really disappointed. And I came back and I was with my husband and my son who who uh, started Sunlight's Balayage with me. And I, I looked at them and I said, you know what? Forget this. It is not a trend. Balayage is a little black dress. It's not going anywhere. So we need to do this. If they won't do it for me, I'll just do it myself. So I researched and I found uh, a chemist and I began working with a chemist and I was in R&D for two years. And what I came up with was that I am from Georgia. And so Georgia is a natural resource for clay. And kaolin clay made a lot of sense of why wouldn't we put clay and lightener? Because when you're freehand painting, the product really needs to adhere to the hair and sort of harden on the outside and lift in the middle. And most of the lighteners that I had used were highly concentrated with silica. And silica was a sand. And sand caused balayage to have dot marks and pop marks and bleeding and bruising and dusting. And so therefore, it was a struggle. And so therefore, when people would paint hair, they would quit doing it because they weren't getting great results. So I spent two years in R&D and finally came up with the perfect product. And that's when I launched Sunlights. And when I did it, I promise you, I did it for my salon and for my academy. I had no idea that this thing would grow and to morph into 10 countries, 48 states. And, you know, I'm dancing as fast as I can now. I mean, I really, truly did it. I said to my husband when we first made our initial order, I said, well, here's the deal. Um, if it doesn't work and, you know, the people from our academy don't like it, at least our salon will use it. So in my garage, and that's a true story, my staff came over, we set up tables we took bags of lightener, we tied twist ties on them, we put the scoops in, we put the label on the jar, we put the, the lid on, we folded the insert, we put the insert in, we put it into the box. I mean, we literally built every single piece by hand. And um, I guess you might say the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it went from, you know, just a dream of you know, helping my staff and helping the people who believed in me and my academy to now traveling all over the world, you know, uh, not only sharing the balayage revolution and the balayage mission, but, you know, sharing sunlights and, you know, and, and that particular thing. And so when you say, how did you get into the color business? I literally just did it out of necessity. And, you know, I created nine SKUs and put it into a box. Why did I put it in a, a box? It was very simple. I'm dyslexic. And so for me, it was simple. It was simplifying it for the learner. And it, to me, I, I literally said, everybody at a trade show has a big bag. Everybody has a bag and the bags are so big now you can put people in the bags. I mean, I've never seen bags. I mean, every bag is bigger and bigger and bigger. And I said, forget it. We're going to put a class in the box. 
Uh, what I want to do is I want to go to all the independents out there, whether it's a salon owner or an independent who's in, um, you know, leasing a station. I want to put a little of me in a box and just say, if you'll just plug in this digital um, education and here are the tools that you need to actually go do it yourself. And you can just do your first one on a mannequin, your second one on your sister, and a third one on a paying guest. And, and you know, it was my goal just to, to let them have that visual uh, um, quick learn because there's so much margin for error and balayage. So how did I get in it? Simply, I fell in it. You want to know the truth? <laughs> so, so talk a little bit about balayage, you know, uh, as a technique, as opposed to other techniques that a colorist could use, because not everybody balayages, right? So, Absolutely. So, so talk about that and, and the, what you, because you obviously saw something in this that was good for you as someone doing color, as, as an artist, something for your clients, but, but what was the core of that idea? What you drew you to this? Well, I have always been, you know, one thing my father always taught me um, as, as a stylist was don't ever lose sight of beauty. And to me, um, beauty was something and is still something that I'm very passionate about. And I know uh, that can sound very loose, like, oh, well, we're all in the beauty business. Yeah, we are. But there's some people that do some freaky stuff out there. <laughs> and so, you know, I always knew that I was not going to be in the freak show business, you know, that I wasn't going to cut hair or color hair for my ego. Yet the client was the star for me. And it, it was very evident to me when I started working with celebrity clientele that these women were not after, you know, weird, wacky and wild. They were after, you know, consumer friendly, beautiful, healthy, shiny, amazing hair. And honestly, you know, balayage is something that I learned over 20 years ago uh, or even more Um and I, I was a little nervous myself before I started really diving into painting hair because I could foil hair behind my back. So my salon currently, like I said, has 50 chairs and it's 98% foil free and has been for quite some time. I still use foiling for various um, color corrections or things if I want a specific look. But what I would tell your listeners out there is I can do everything with a paintbrush that you can do with, with a foil. You know, uh, it doesn't limit you as your technique. Um, you know, at technically, it doesn't limit you. It actually expands your capability. Um, and to me, what I was always, always drawn to with balayage is just simply how natural and how childlike it looked. And how it sort of reawakened hair's natural brilliance, and it made it look like it happened itself. Um, and really, what I was also drawn to is how it made hair look younger. And I, I know that sounds silly, but like, how do you make hair look younger? Yeah, we we spend our lives as stylists always trying to make women look younger, but yet sometimes we do hard things to them, you know. So. If you do hard color or hard lines or hard things, you're going to make a woman feel like she's harder. And there's a position and a place for that. You know, if somebody really wants to be edgy and, 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 and funky, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect 
arena for them. But for me, what balayage was doing that I never really realized is it was not only is it greener, it's faster, it's more profitable, but it was fun. And what it was doing for the hairdresser behind the chair is it was reinventing them. It was it was letting them do more with what they already had in their existing clientele. And it was giving us an opportunity to earn a better living and have a better life. And what I mean by that is the efficiencies of balayage is so much faster that the reason I can do 25 or 35 guests a day is because I can paint a head of hair and um, short hair and eight, 10 minutes and long hair in 15 to 20. So it cut down the working time of um, being able to do the look. Um, And that to me uh, just really, you know, I see these young kids, they go on the floor and in a year they're, they're doing, you know, $150,000 behind the chair in their first year of being on the floor. And they're doing that because they have a paintbrush in their hand because they're able to do more people and, and a lot, quicker time frame. Um, so the benefit of it is, is yes, the looks are soft and seamless, but more importantly, it lets you be an artist and, you know, quite frankly, guests and clients can't replicate that across the street. You know, they have to come to you. And so they become more codependent on your brush stroke. On the other side, and you've referenced both sides here, I think, you know, the artistry and and certainly the technical work, but also the dollars and cents of it, which I think is a great lead in. Uh, You were recently recognized um, as a female entrepreneur of the year. Um, And um, so much of what you've said in in our conversation so far, you know, I keep finding these little dotted lines to entrepreneurship and the business side of everything um, that happens in this industry. And I know you have as much passion for the business of beauty as you do for the art um, and the technique side. So talk a little bit about that. A, kudos to you for the recognition. I also know, you know, that you you were recognized in, in, in beauty pitch, you know, um, at Cosmoprof this year and, and got a couple big awards there. And so yeah, talk about entrepreneurship, as, especially as it relates to anybody who's listening who aspires to be better at the business side. Well, I will say that um, being an entrepreneur, you know, so many people use that word very lightly, I mean, loosely. And what I mean by that is anybody can say, oh, you know, uh, I've decided to get a website and have my entrepreneurial spirit and go out there and try to do my own thing. Yes. With the the influx of booth renting and 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 those types of things, I mean, you are an entrepreneur. You're going out on your own. You're opening up your own little business. But I don't want for your viewers to be mistaken that it took me over 20 years to become an overnight sensation. So it's not like I just woke up three years ago and just decided that I was going to be an entrepreneur and and go out and try to win all these awards and do all these things. It, you know, worked really 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 hard at it. You know, my dad taught me a lot of things. One thing he used to always tell me is, you know, successful people will do what unsuccessful people won't do. And, you know, you got to answer the bell and you got to work a half a day every day. And I never understood what that meant a half a day every day. Well, there's 24 hours in the day. So you do the math. But, but the reality is the business side of what we do now is, is, 
is so important. And leveraging yourself um, in that entrepreneurial light with your guest is so important. And one thing that I could tell to your viewers or to your listeners is that I try to empower every stylist that works for me to have the spirit of an entrepreneur and to run their chair as if it was their own salon. And what I mean by that is better business is, you know, showing up on time, ready to work, looking the part, being the part. You know, it's really not crowded at the top. Um, and that's what surprises me so much about this business is if people would just take a moment and get organized and follow through and focus and not burn bridges and, um, you know, focus on, on listening, um, to those, uh, ahead of them, you know, people will share their knowledge with you. That's what I have found about being an entrepreneur, uh, that I love the most is when people ask me a question about business or how to run their salon, how to hire, you know, how to, as I call it, relocate an employee or how to do things, uh, uh, in my business strategy. You know, I love sharing that part of that. And, you know, uh, the, the higher up you get, and I don't even really know if that's the right way to say it, but the higher up or the more, the more people who listen to your knowledge you get is, I guess, a better way of putting it, the more responsibility that you have to run a great business and to, you know, people are looking over your shoulder. I mean, people shadow me in my salon all the time, you know, and it keeps, it keeps me, it keeps me tight. You know, it keeps me knowing that the devil is in the detail. I've always been a very organized, detail-oriented person, um, sometimes to a fault, you know, because my expectation is very, very high. Uh, but I also find that sometimes as a business owner, people will do what you inspect more than what you expect. So you have to really work hard at letting them know what your expectations are. And, um, you know, to run a successful salon, you have to be willing to say no and you have to be willing um, to not always be popular. I often say that popular decisions um, aren't always right and right decisions aren't always popular. And sometimes I'm not popular. I know that um, because I know it's the right decision for my staff or it's the right decision for my company or Sunlights uh, or for my academy or even for my family. Um, and so having the courage to stand up as an entrepreneur and, and, and truly say no and say, no, that's not in the best interest of my company or it's not in the best interest of our culture or our mission. Um, you know, my dad put it best and how he said, you know, sometimes when people would sort of draw you in. I remember the moment when hair salons were dividing into becoming departmentalization back, what was it, maybe 20 years ago, would yeah, you say? Yep. And I remember, I remember everybody saying, oh, Jameson, you've got to departmentalize. You've got to departmentalize. Now, look, I know some extremely successful people who have departmentalized salons. Uh, you know, Van Council, one of my buddies here in Atlanta, you know, has a very successful business in departmentalization. But at the time, 20 years ago, my father made the choice and he said, no, you know, this is what I love and I'm, I, I want to be a cutter and a colorist. This is, this is what I 
this is how I'm trained and this is what I want to do as a competition hairdresser. That was his lineage. And, you know, and he would say, you know, the tail doesn't wag this dog. And, and, and his, and his, and his meaning of that was, you know, I'm not going to be influenced just by what the, what the, what the popular vote is, the popular decision is, you know, yeah, that's maybe what's happening right now, but I just know from a standpoint, I'm going to do what I'm best at, you know, like our salon, we sell product, we sell, you know, nails, makeup, you know, uh, uh, those types of things, but I don't have a boutique store in the front of my salon selling clothes and handbags and candles and, you know, and, uh, things like that. You know, that's not what I'm best at. There's some people out there that are really good at that, but, you know, we just stick to what we're good at because that's what, you know, that's when you can be an authority and not spreading yourself too thin, even though, uh, as I'm hearing those words come out of my mouth, I'm sure my husband is going to laugh at the podcast when Mm -hmm. he hears me say that. (laughs) Um, but you know, not spreading yourself too thin by what I mean by that is, you know, focus on those things that you can clearly make the message, um, you know, clearly do the right thing with like, you know, it's, it would be easy as a manufacturer for me right now to run right out and, you know, make nail polish and make hair extensions and make tools and make, you know, I could just go on and on and on because I have a little leverage, but I'm really, really choosing to focus my brand, my brand Candy Shaw, my brand Sunlights on what I'm good at and what I'm passionate about. And um, the things that I'm passionate about is cutting hair and obviously painting hair um, and business. And um, next year in my academy, one of the biggest requests that I have is for business classes and for people to come and not only learn, you know, cutting and coloring, but also stay an extra day and and sit around the boardroom and, and talk, talk about, talk about the challenges, you know, talk about the, talking about the strategies that you can use to, um, better yourself as an entrepreneur, you know, how to do it. I mean, anybody that asked me, you know, it used to be Gordon that everything was always a big secret, you know, um, and not to mention any names, but some very, very, very powerful people in our industry who I know you know and love and respect have been unbelievable sounding boards for me along the way. I can't even begin to tell you the times that I've picked up the phone and called people who are big CEOs of companies or presidents or manufacturers or people out there who I've just picked up the phone and leaned on them. And just said, you know, what do I do? Um, you know, I'm at a crossroad. You know, how do I how do I get there? You know, what what am I doing wrong? Um, and it's amazing how this industry shares now. You know, it's not a big secret anymore. You know, if you truly have the entrepreneurial spirit, you know, be careful what you wish for. But at the same time, um, it's amazing how people will share that knowledge with you. Well, and some but, of it, I think, is a cultural shift because, mm-hmm. again, you and I have been around this forever. And I think, as you're saying, it's today, you know, we kind of live in an open book world for better or for worse. But there were those days years ago um, where it, the conventional wisdom was kind of 
keep your cards close. That was kind of what people said to one another. You know, it's like, you don't want to share everything because the competition is so intense out there. And it feels like there has been a shift in, in the world around us and a shift in thinking because the one thing that hasn't changed is it's always been a giving industry, but definitely I think the idea of secrets and, and, um, has changed. I completely agree. And I have to credit my years with the Intercoiffure with that. You know, Intercoiffure has always been about sharing in a brotherhood. Um, you know, some might have called it a club back in the days, but uh, really, that is the only way I've ever known the salon industry is sharing and giving and supporting and standing behind your brothers and your sisters. Now, I took that philosophy of that networking and being involved in that, and I turned it into my own city. So I started an Atlanta Salon Owners Association uh, about three years ago. The first meeting was in my living room, you know, and we basically came and I just called up all the the people in my city that I love and I respect um, and said, hey, guys, I would love to get together and, and let's, you know, let's talk about things. Uh, let, let's share ideas. Let's share our knowledge. And this is long before, it's probably even more than three, probably four years ago, you know, before Instagram and Facebook was as big as it is now, you know, where we can now snoop on everybody else's businesses if we want to, right? But the reality was, um, I lost a cousin to cancer. Um, let's see, my daughter is 16. She was one year old at the time. So 15 years ago, she was a colorist. Her name was Danielle Shaw. She was my cousin of Don and Sylvia Shaw. I and remember. Don uh, and Sylvia started getting these hair shows together called You Could Make a Difference. And we would do these hair shows in our town and we would invite the top 10 salons in, in Atlanta. And guess what? We advertised together, which was unheard of. And um, we did things as, as a, again, as a brotherhood for a greater cause um, and, you know, raise money on behalf of melanoma. She died of melanoma. And, you know, that just kind of got the the wheels spinning. And then we kind of all took a little bit of a hiatus and, you know, uh, fast tracked, uh, you know, on to about four years ago, I decided that I felt like we needed to do that again. And I would love to see more cities have that, you know, I hate the fact that, I mean, van is one mile from me, you know, I mean, and we're both, both of our salons are completely different, we, completely different cultures, and we're both uber successful, you know, and I really credit, I mean, my husband goes to lunch with Van all the time, and they, we share ideas, and we talk about the good and the bad and the ugly, um, and we celebrate life, you know, and we're all friends, and so to me, um, one thing I would love to see as a shift in our industry is is, you know, you know, put your money where your mouth is, you know, like get out there and, 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 and help your brothers and sisters, um, and, and do the right thing, you know, and stand up for the industry. You know, it's not unusual for a new applicant to walk into my salon and apply for a job. And I will look at them and I'll say, Oh, wait a minute you don't belong here in my culture. You need to go work for my buddy, Jeff South at club at intrigue salon, you know, and you need to go work for Jeff. You are exactly Jeff's, you know, uh, uh, kind of people, or, you know, you need to go work for this person. And I pick up the phone and I get him a job and I'll say, Hey, you know, you, you, you really would be 
best suited. You live out in Kennesaw. You should go work for Lester Crowell at, you know, 313 Salon or, or Don and Flawny Westbrook uh, at Elan Salon. You know, I, I get people jobs all the time because not everybody's perfect for your, for your salon, you know, and, um, or you may not have an opening when they come in. Absolutely. And, and I, I don't want to lose good people, you know, good people who are passionate. You know, I want to protect the hairdresser as much as I can, not only in the classroom, but to be better business uh, business owners in their own right. Well, one of the things I think that's really powerful that, you know, you're bringing up is this sense of community. And again, as somebody who's been around and, and seen so much, and I know you live through this, you know, when I first came into the industry, there was an infrastructure that's quite different than what we have today across the entire industry. There was a, There was over 600 local National Cosmetology Association affiliates in almost every city and many of the towns across the entire country. There were 80,000 hairdressers who got together in each other's salons to train one another, who had camaraderie you know, in local environments and, and kind of put the competition aside for the weekend when they would get together once a month. And, and then over time, we saw that kind of disintegrate for all kinds of reasons. And, and then we saw other things and we saw the manufacturers come in and, and create new infrastructure and we had people getting together that way. And, and now the times have changed again. And so people like yourself are bubbling up and offering another opportunity to get together. But I, I think what's so encouraging is that this is a, a, a naturally social um, environment that we live in as an industry. It's a naturally caring group of people. And the more people who create those, those little islands of opportunity to bring people together, like what you've done, the more we will see it happen. So uh, we just had one of those in Chicago, because again, we've seen here locally, not as much get together over the last 10 years. And so I think it's starting to bubble up out of a need that people are seeing. So kudos to you. I hope anybody listening, you know, who is not having get-togethers in their area, whether it's hairdressers or whether it's owners or whether it's independents, I hope somebody will be the activist in, in that hairdressing community locally and, and start something up and maybe call Candy to find out how to do it. Absolutely. I mean, I would uh, love to help or mentor any town. You know, I'm also the membership chairman for Interquafura, and I, I bring that up because it sort of uh, speaks to something that you're saying right now. Um, I took this role on. Frank Gambuza asked me to be the membership chair. He's the president of Interquafura. He's in Knoxville running amazing salons with his wife, Belinda, Salon Passage, and Frank's uh, uh, barbershops and everything under the sun. But one of the reasons why I t took this position was, in the midst of everything else I'm doing, was because it really opened the door for me to see the opportunity to know where, where our weaknesses are in, in, as salon owners. Now, I am, of course, a commission-based salon, and I do know that a lot of your listeners out there are... Um, you know, on their own, you know, leasing spaces or doing these things. But I think that there still has to be the same level of thinking about community that um, that is super important for the independent to listen and to say, you know, just because you chose to go in a room and be by yourself and do your guest on your own time with your own flexibility and all that type of thing, what you still want to make sure that you're doing is that you are still involved in a team atmosphere and you're still getting education and you're still talking to other stylists and you're still out there, you know, volunteering and doing things as a community. Um, because the spirit of the hairdresser goes far beyond a haircut and a color. 
you know, the spirit of the hairdresser is, um, you know, we are difference makers. I don't think we realize what a privilege it is to be a hairdresser and how our gifts really touch lives. Um, and having been the membership chairman, I can't tell you how many feuds that have been happening in cities, because one of the requirements for being a member is for me to check and do my due diligence with other members in that state to make sure that if Gordon Miller is applying for membership, that he hasn't burned a bridge in that state with any other current member that's a salon owner. So during that due diligence period, a lot of um, skeletons come out of the closet, if you so so to speak. You know, bad decision making on behalf of someone who left an organization the wrong way. You know, there's a right way to leave. And um, so to your listener out there, no matter what you're doing, whatever choice you're making to go become a salon owner from a previous environment of, of, of a team atmosphere whether it's leasing a station or what have you, you know, hear ye, hear ye. You know, if you do things the right way, you know, you can always stay successful. And um, I have really had to help people bury hatchets in towns that they weren't speaking and they were furious at each other for various things that they did that was in wrongdoing. But I'm happy to say that my mission is, you know, to teach people that you can get along and you can all be successful. And even if you're a mile apart or 10 miles apart, you can, you can build a successful business on your back and not the back of others. You know, uh, if you leave a salon, leave it with dignity, you know, do it the right way, do it with grace, uh, and go build it yourself. You know, you don't need what they, you don't need their people. Don't take everybody with you, you know, uh, do it on your own accord. You, you'll sleep a lot better at night. And, um, and so anyway, so that's been a very powerful thing for me. I, 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 I'm, I'm really proud to say that some people that maybe didn't get it right now, they're realizing the importance of that now. And, um, especially in light of how our industry is changing. Well, and I, two things. First of all, um, a shout out to Frank, Frank Cambuza, also a former podcast guest on the American Salon Stories podcast. So check out the playlist. He was, he's one of the most popular podcasts we've had on there. I, we, we both love Frank and have so much respect for him. Um, and uh, kind of riffing off the topics that you brought, just brought up. Interesting too, again, you know, the, we see an independent movement certainly, you know, underfoot and, and to echo in a different way what you were saying. You know, I would say that, um, to those who are salon owners, you know, lead with dignity as well. Um, Something that we also hear, you know, as we talk to those moving into the independent space, of course, that idea of, you know, the power of teamwork. And what I hear so often, you know, and I think we, those of us have been around, we find it so challenging when we hear this, but so many people leaving leaving independent salons to become independent themselves because, they don't have that teamwork. They're not feeling that teamwork in the commission salon. And so, you know, when you don't have it, you know, and, and you know, perhaps that it's important, but it doesn't exist for you because you're not in an environment where it is part of the culture. Because we know not, not all businesses are perfect and oh, not, certainly not all absolutely. do the things that, that, that you do and that so many of the great salons and role models out there do. And I think that's one of the bigger challenges for just owners generally is creating that culture 
that allows people to grow and allows people to feel part of something. Because I would argue that one of the biggest challenges the industry faces today, and, and the reason that we see the movement in booth rental that we do, is that we don't have enough leadership in enough salons. And and uh, you know, I'm, I'm speaking broadly. I couldn't agree. I could not agree with you more. Um, you know, you're absolutely right, Gordon. You know, before I started uh, doing Sunlights, I traveled for. 20 years teaching from some of the greats like Gene Juarez and Kenneth Anders and Mario's. And I, I taught all over the country and I would go into uh, these businesses and to tell you a funny story. So not those people I just mentioned, but many of the salon owners that would hire me to come in to um, teach French cutting or balayage or whatever it was I was teaching, they would pick me up from the airport and we would get in the car and I would look over and I would say, so Gordon, you know, what can I do for you this weekend? Like, what what do you need from me? Because as you know, it's hard to dance in your own backyard. You know, when you're an owner and you're trying to tell people, oh, look, this is the way we do something, it's always heard a little differently from an outsider coming in, right? And so the owner would look at me in the car and they'd say, you know, Candy, I just wish you could motivate my people. And I would look at them and I would say, well, are you taking my class this weekend? Are you going to come? Are you going to take my class? And they're like, oh no, I'm not going to take your class. I mean, I'm going to let, you know, Susie take my spot. I, I've got some errands to run and, you know, and I've got to go over here and I, you know, I've got to take my kid to the, this or, you know, whatever the case may be. And I would look at them and I would say, well, there's your first problem. Because if you cannot motivate somebody if you are not in the trenches with them, you have to get in the trenches to be a powerful leader. You walk alongside. You don't walk in the front of them and expect them to follow. You can't demand that. You have to be in the trenches with your people. That's why I'm still behind the chair. I love that part of what I do simply because I can prove to them that you you can do it all and you can have it all. And and so when someone tells me I'm not taking the class or I, I'm going to sit in the office while you're out there trying to motivate my people, I already know they're setting themselves up for failure right there. And um, I just feel it's super important for the business owner or the salon owner out there who might be having these massive walkouts to take a long, hard look in the mirror at what it is that you are accountable for in that. I'm proud to say that in all of the booth renting influx of the trend of people leaving, as a matter of fact, Gordon, I have a independent um, uh, suite uh, building in my parking lot of where my salon is. So there's my salon and right behind my salon is a whatever solo salon or whatever it's called. I'm not sure exactly what the name of it is. I have not lost one um staff member to booth renting. Um, not for the past 10 years, I haven't. And I really think that the reason for that is because I, I, sh I share with them, um, I let them be a part of our success. And I share with them my knowledge, my good days, my bad days, my ups, my downs, and I push them to greatness. You know, when I hire someone, the first thing I say to them is my goal is to make you a champion and whatever it is going to take for me to help make you a champion, that's what I'm going to do. And, and sometimes salon owners forget their responsibility 
of helping people to get there. You know, you can't just sit back in the office and point the finger. You know, I always say if you point a finger out, you've got three more pointing right back at you. Like, what is your accountability and what is your responsibility? But at the same time, you have to know when to hug and you have to know when to spank. And everybody needs discipline. And I think when you see your salon falling apart and people walking out, it's because you lack in that discipline uh, yourself. And sometimes we get a little jaded. Um, you know, salon owners will be the first to tell you that you put it on coast mode and you sort of coast through. And, um, you know, we don't like the confrontation and we don't want to have to deal with it. But I think also we must understand a philosophy philosophy that my father had forever, and he, I still to this day live by it. And that is that you have to prune from the top and grow from the bottom. If you have a salon that only has people that have been there 15, 20, 25, 30 years, and you have no new, no new seeds that you're planting, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure along, down the road. Um, you don't have sustainability. You have to kind of get rid of things. You have to have natural attrition. You have to have people who have been with your company for a long time to leave and to move on and to let other people have an opportunity to rise to the occasion. I think that's an important part of success. I know it's been a very big part of our success through the years. Well, and I love the spanking thing. And I'll only say to those who are thinking about spanking, take a big step back and spank yourself. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, sometimes we need to spank ourselves. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, two more things I, I have to talk about before we wrap up. And one of them is called Leading Ladies. Um, our mutual friends, Eden Sassoon and Tracy Hughes, Jenny Streeby and Sonia Dove and you, are part of something called Leading Ladies. I know it It launched at the premiere show. I know you're bringing it to ISSC. So give us the short version of Leading Ladies because it's certainly a group of powerful women. Well, it's um, it's been amazing. We had an amazing response from it in Orlando. Uh, Tracy approached Howard and came up with this idea of all of us kind of getting together. We're very, very different in a lot of ways. We're very, very much the same. And so we just sit and talk about life and talk about our struggles and talk about what it takes to be a leading lady. Um, you know, it, it's not all, uh, you know, we don't, we don't consider looking through rose colored glasses. You know, we, we don't see life that way. We all have been to the school of hard knocks and each of us have, um, you know, the scars to prove it. Uh, but I think it's really a, a beautiful uh, group of women who have a common denominator. And that common denominator is giving back to the community of hairdressing. And even though the word girl power might be a little bit, you know, cliche, but it is truly showing women uh, that we, we need to have a voice. Um, you know, instead of women filling the break rooms, we now need to fill the boardrooms, you know. Um, 85% of our industry is women, you know, why aren't women making more decisions? And so I'm really happy to be involved in it. And I hope if you're going to be at ISSE in January, um, you can see us there and we hope to take it to many other cities, uh, after this one. Love it. It's a, a great thing. And I, I hope to have the whole group on a podcast soon. Um, so I love to ask everybody this question and, and that is, um, share with our audience something that you're reading, listening to, 
viewing, watching, obsessing about, just something that you think would be interesting or fun or or inspirational for our audience to check out? Well, it's funny you should say I don't have a whole lot of time to do a lot of any of those things half of the time. But one thing that I could uh, leave your listeners with is I give myself um, about 30 to 45 minutes every morning to wake up and to listen or watch something on Facebook or on Instagram stories or what have you that's inspiring and inspirational and educational. So I'll go on YouTube. I'll go on. I will make sure that I begin my day every day with something inspiring or educational. So there's not one particular thing that I'm doing. The only TV series I'm into right now is This Is Us. I'm obsessed with Mm -hmm. that. Absolutely love the writing in that. Absolutely love the story. But what I do is, you know, another thing my father taught me was in order to be successful, you got to get up an hour a an hour earlier every day than you used to. And in that hour, you have to spend it wisely doing things that fill your mind with good energy and good resources. So that's kind of what I obsess over. I make sure that every day I have that opportunity to watch one of my uh, peers, uh, one of my staff members, one of my, uh, someone I admire in the industry, um, I just go through and I thumb through uh, something that I think is trending and, uh, and I watch it. And it's amazing the types of things that you can learn um, out there with some of the, the great resources that we have. Um, and so that's kind of what I do and obsess about. That's good stuff. And I love that you do it with intention and I love that you do it every day. And I think that's just great advice and and you're such a great role model. Um, tell everybody how they can find you and your company online. Well, you can always go to sunlightsbalayage.com. That is of course for the Bali box and for the Bali box 2.0 that we just came out with. Um, you can, Look at all the class dates there and request a class to have some in-house education if that's something you so desire. It also tells you where I'll be. You can find me on at the Bali Lama on Instagram and Candy Shaw on Facebook. Um, you could also look up our salon at Jameson Shaw, my father's name. You can look up Academy Dates there as well at backslash Academy at Jameson Shaw. Um, so pretty much you can look, I've got a ton of stuff on YouTube as well. I've got, uh, well over a hundred videos of how to's. One thing I'm kind of famous for is my little tips and tricks Tuesday. So you can always look for me on a Tuesday to give you a two to three minute blurb of content of something that's unique or just very, again, authentic behind the chair, something I'm doing that I want to tell, tell the learners out there. So those are all different ways you can find me. I love that. I encourage everybody to check you out online. I love the content that you put, your educational videos. As you mentioned, they're just superb. You are a, a force of nature, a, a force <laughs> in the industry. Uh, Candy Shaw, the founder of Sunlight's Balayage, known around the world, including in, in the Delta Sky Lounge as the Baliyama. Ba- I said it <laughs> wrong. Let me, let me say it again. The Bali Lama. I don't even think we'll edit that out. I think we'll leave that in. <laughs> the Bali Lama. 
Thank you so much, Candy, for being with us on the American Salon Stories podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you. And I also like to be known as the Bali Mama. So that's a big <laughs> thing, too. So and 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 for everything yellow. So <laughs> oh, my I gosh. Appreciate this moment, Gordon. Uh, you know, uh, this is uh, it's always an honor uh, to talk to hairdressers and to share my knowledge. And if I can ever help you, either it be in the classroom or just on a personal level, just know that um, I am that type of person who has an open door and I'm more than happy to share my knowledge. And if you're at a beauty show, listeners out there, if you're at a beauty show, any or a beauty event, and you're looking for Candy Shaw, look for that bundle of yellow energy. The, the, <laughs> the yellow energy. She, she's in yellow from head to toe, looking gorgeous everywhere, easy to spot. Check her out, Candy Shaw. Thank you so much, Candy. Thank you. Have a great day. <laughs> and we'll be back next week with another American Salon Stories podcast. In the meantime, we hope you'll follow American Salon on Instagram, where we're known as American underscore Salon, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash American Salon. That's all one word. And of course, on americansalon.com, where you can also subscribe to the Daily Beauty Fix e-newsletter. This is American Salon guest contributor and harebrained CEO, Gordon Miller, and I can't wait to bring you another American Salon Stories podcast next week. Music.